Hello and welcome back to a new season of the Library Cafe on WVKR, a weekly program of table talk with scholars and artists about research and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. Today I'm delighted to have on the program Liza Donnelly. Liza is a cartoonist and writer best known for her work in The New Yorker and as resident cartoonist of CBS News. She's also published and well-known for her work on the op-ed page of the New York Times, and she's published in many other venues as well. She has taught as a visiting professor here at Vassar College and is the author of 17 books. These books include her historical monograph, Funny Ladies, The New Yorker's Greatest Women Cartoonists and Their Cartoons. She also has a series of illustrated children's books. She is a columnist on politics and global women's rights for the online journal Medium Magazine. Worth a look if you've never gone online to find it. And finally, she's invented something of a medium of her own called Digital Live Drawing, where she responds to events online in real time by drawing on a tablet. Liza's talking to us by telephone about the retrospective exhibit of her work entitled Comic Relief, currently on view at the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and about cartooning in general. Welcome, Liza. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Great. Been mm-hmm. meaning to yeah, to want you. to contact you to do an interview for a long time since I saw a few of your cartoons back when you were teaching here, and it seemed to me uh, you'd mm. be a perfect person to have on. Thank you. Yeah, one of the editors of the Minisk uh, contacted me, and I did some cartoons. Oh, them. great! Yeah. Is it unusual to have an art museum host a retrospective of a cartoonist's work like this? I mean, uh, it's a lot of cartoons and a big part of the museum in terms of exhibition space. We did here at Vassar have a show at the Loeb Center on the art of Saul Steinberg, where the curator here at the time, Joel Smith, pointed out the difficulty that cartoonists face in getting recognition as artists. And, you know, I think it was Saul Steinberg who made the joke that the problem with humor is that nobody takes it seriously. (laughs) So, um, and and also there's a problem in that cartoonists often work in mass media, which is one of the ways Mm -hmm. that people distinguish between highbrow art and everything else. So um, is cartooning starting to be taken seriously, and is this by the Norman Rockwell Museum at all unusual? Well, not unusual, because there have been, as you pointed out, Saul Steinberg had a show in in the early 80s at the Whitney, and then other cartoonists over the years have had shows at the City Museum of New York and other places. And it's great that the Norman Rockwell Museum contacted me. I'm honored to have a show there. But I've thought about all these things you've mentioned over the years, in terms of mass medium and arts. And when I was starting out in New York for The New Yorker, when that exhibit of Saul Steinberg, who I, I was a fan of his work already, a follower and a, influenced by him, when I saw he had a show at the Whitney, I was thrilled because finally cartoonists are getting the recognition that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Because I think prior to that show, I don't know that there had been anything quite along those lines, a big major show of, of somebody in, in this realm. So it was validation for me because when I began as a child drawing, I wanted to be a political cartoonist, but I didn't know how to be the kind you see in the newspapers. It just was not my way. But I saw The New Yorker and I saw that they did have political cartoons in there, but they were of a different sort. You know, they were commenting on culture. I like Steinberg did, commenting on culture, commenting on humanity, but also some of them would comment on politics and 
that kind of thing. Yeah. So I looked at the New Yorker, and that's where I started to send stuff to them. Because I think they also treat their cartoonists as artists, in uh-huh. that they give us a lot of leeway, a lot of uh-huh. leeway to do what we want to do. There's a sort of subtlety about those cartoons, isn't there? I mean, the New Yorker, it's clear in the exhibit that the New Yorker was really influential on you, even as a child. And there's something about mm-hmm. it, isn't there? There's something about the cartoons that you find there. It's almost a medium in itself, the New Yorker cartoons. There's something about those cartoons that, that draws people to the New Yorker. It sells lots of magazines, for sure. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's that participatory cartoon always at the end where you're invited to caption a cartoon. So. Mm-hmm. There's just something subtle. Maybe and that's the word here, subtlety, that uh, mm-hmm. distinguishes blatant propagandistic cartoons from something more like an art form, like a literary form. Yeah, it's a dialogue between the... And maybe that's often... Well, that's true of art and print uh-huh. art, in that it's a communication between the viewer and the creator. And uh-huh. some political cartoons are like that, but some are more about the creator, like imposing their opinion on you like uh-huh. this is what i think you know this is what's going on instead of like what do you think whereas i think the new yorker cartoons are more like that trying to elicit a laugh but also yeah. trying to share a lived experience yeah interesting maybe it's the difference mm-hmm. between standing on a podium and shouting at people like mm-hmm. uh, donald trump or hitler <laughs> or, yeah, right. or or listening you know and making some gesture that you aren't just there to tell people what to do i don't know but uh, uh-huh. yeah i I think there's a lot to that, and that's the problem we're in right now with editorial cartoons. I don't know if you want to get into that at this point. (laughs) Well, yeah, sure, we could. Some time back now, I did do an interview with Louis Rose, who's director of the Freud Archive, about his book, Mm. Psychology, Art, and Anti-Fascism, Ernst Chris, E.H. Gombrich, and the Politics of Caricature, where Chris and Gombrich were looking at Daumier and his uh, political cartooning. And they mm-hmm. were both hired by the Allies during the war, Chris and Gombrich, both, as part of a huge propaganda machine that I had no idea of, both in Britain and in the United States. We had these think tanks of people who were scholars often investigating propaganda and, oh. and how to counter mm-hmm. it. And they came up with this notion, uh, very interesting, that as an art form, Domia was doing something different than just sort of standing on a soapbox, uh, lambasting Louis Napoleon in France, which is what his caricature was kind of known for, that there was a subtlety to it, and there's a subtlety about Mm -hmm. all political speech that works. And if you do try to beat people over the head with something, you end up weakening yourself. And that, mm-hmm. that was the main conclusion of the whole operation there, that propaganda is self-defeating, uh, especially mm-hmm. in a situation where you've got democratic nations fighting against totalitarianism. So, but, mm-hmm. um, and anyway, it's an interesting point. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Two things come to mind. First of all, talk about propaganda and, and caricature or, or cartoons back when the women women and men were trying to get the, the 19th Amendment ratified, uh-huh. there were cartoonists drawing on both sides of the aisle. There were women, a lot of women drawing cartoons to get the vote for women, and then there uh-huh. were anti-suffrage people drawing cartoons to counter that. So there was like a battle between cartoonists at that time. And there, is, there sort of is now, though, there are fewer conservative cartoonists in the editorial cartoonist world than uh-huh. there are liberal. And since Donald Trump was elected president, I would often get people remarking to me or asking me, it must be a fun time for, for cartoonists with 
a president such as Donald Trump. And I have a complicated answer to that because it's when he was running for president in 2016, I was drawing cartoons about him and characters of him and, and Hillary and other of the uh, candidates. And during that time, I drew him, I started drawing him in short pants as, uh, to, as if to mock uh, him that he's a, he's a schoolyard bully. Yeah. When he became president, I decided to take the short pants off and give him some <laughs> pants out of respect for the office yeah. <laughs> and to give him a chance, you know, yeah. to, I wanted to give him a chance. And then I, over the years since his election, I would watch my colleagues, most of whom are liberal, uh-huh. drawing a lot of very loud, angry, forceful yeah negative cartoons about him and yeah. that's their freedom but i began to think about how that's not really doing anything it's more becoming as you were talking about maybe working against the artist because what it is is just speaking to our side it's like speaking to the converted and it's pushing anybody who might be swayed away so it's becoming even more divisive drawing over and over again drawing negative cartoons about trump so that said right now i'm doing a fair number and i uh, drawings that are expressing my opinion uh, that I, I'm against Trump. Uh-huh. So I'm pushing back again now. I put him back in short pants. Yeah, so, uh-huh. <laughs> because I feel like the election is pretty dire. It's yeah. pretty important. Oh, yeah. yeah there's much at stake, it. for sure. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. A, that's the sad... Well, if humor isn't taken seriously, but I think it is in, on some level, politics is a very serious mm. business. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting cultural juxtaposition of seriousnesses, isn't it, or lack mm. thereof? Yeah. Being, trying to be funny about something that's very serious. So. It's a fine line to walk. Uh-huh. Uh. But my cartoons are sometimes not funny, and uh-huh. I think editorial cartoonists sometimes aren't funny. they uh. more like discussing the, the issues. Like I said, cartoons for me are dialogue, and they're often about expressing my feelings and my opinion, but they're yeah. also about offering up, this is what I think is going on. There are gradations of humor, too, aren't there? I mean, what I like about your cartoons is that they're very subtle. There's a subtle kind of humor. Mm. It's almost like, you know, you could say a British sensibility. I remember watching um, Midsummer Murders, you know, the mystery series on PBS uh, for a long time, and it was only about the third episode I realized that they were comedies, that they were supposed to be funny. And they were funny, it's just that they were so subtle I wasn't catching it. And then whenever I watch one, they were just <laughs> hilarious, the whole... You know, your cartoons have that sensibility about them. You know, you have to look at them two or three times before you really get what's funny about them. And Thank you. And maybe it's not just funny, you know. There's, yeah, there's a subtlety there that's pleasurable, I guess you could say. So. Oh, thank you. For example, after 9-11, right after 9-11, I, I couldn't figure out what was funny anymore. Uh-huh. And I thought of changing careers, actually. And um, I did a drawing that the New Yorker bought and published right after 9-11, and it was a little girl talking to her father and saying, uh, Daddy, can I stop being worried now? Uh-huh. And that's not funny. It's not funny, but it's talking about the way we were feeling at that time and yeah. still are feeling. So it's the art is, uh, and I, I say my stuff is art, or cartoons, art, whatever you want. Some cartoonists don't like to call themselves artists. That's a, a just a expression of what we're feeling and um, uh-huh. yeah, that's sort of where I come from there's a recognition there and then there's a question I could ask is there a psychological dimension to cartooning I mean are they therapeutic in some way and that they help us to see things about our situation that we're usually kind of blocking or uh, mm-hmm. um, I agree I think many of us either come at the drawing we're doing with a need to express ourselves and comment on what's going on and then now with social media and I put my work on social media a lot, 
even if the New Yorker doesn't buy it. And most of the cartoons they don't buy, I often put on social media uh-huh. because it's a way to express and share what's going on. And I get a lot of, I get a lot of positive feedback from people saying, oh yeah, I was feeling that way. Mm-hmm. Or yes, thank you for doing that. And, and Tom, I was, I've been doing, uh, since the pandemic started, I've been doing uh, something new, which is a version of my live drawing on my iPad. Mm-hmm. It's in my studio. I sit and I, I have a device that holds my camera over my hand. And I draw for about 15 minutes, live draw on Instagram, like live broadcast, uh-huh. what I'm thinking and doing and, and feeling about what's going on. Like during the pandemic, I mm-hmm. would draw not cartoons with ideas, but more like drawings that were about the healthcare workers, the frontline workers, the, uh-huh. the cashiers, that just sort of, and, and talking as I'm drawing and the people that are on the broadcast watching me, they tell me they find it soothing and relaxing and sort of therapeutic. We all like to watch people draw. I do too. Mm-hmm. And it's like a therapy talking about how we're coping. Uh-huh. So that's a new thing that I'm doing. I do it every day at five. Oh, and you do? Uh, okay. People, I, S- mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. can I put a link on the Library Cafe site? where people could go sure. to okay to find mm-hmm. that. And additionally, I have been live drawing with a new startup called Hats TV. Mm-hmm. And it's a live broadcasting app for journalists and it's actually a, a uh, an app that is a, a patron is a sponsor mm-hmm. model where they oh. people can sponsor me but that's beside the point. What I use that for lately has been live drawing the convention. So uh-huh. I can't be there. I was at the DNC in 2016, and I was live drawing in real time in the convention hall. Since I can't do that, mm-hmm. I'm sitting at my in front of my TV, live drawing and broadcasting my drawing of the convention. I did it last week with the DNC, and I'm doing it again this with the RNC. And it's an interesting. And I put quotes in there. I pick mm-hmm. up. I listen for quotes of the person speaking, and uh, add that to the drawing, and then I send it out on Twitter immediately. So, uh-huh. it's a, again, it's, it's a conversation with, with followers, and many people are finding it an interesting way to, to watch an event together. And uh-huh. many of my followers are liberals, of course. They're telling me, I can't watch the, the RNC. And so <laughs> no, I, I can't either. How do you so, do yeah. this? Yeah, how do you <laughs> yeah. do this? And, yeah, uh-huh. and uh, thank you for doing this. And uh-huh. I'm, I'm getting a feel for what's going on at the RNC through your drawing. So it's an interesting thing. The live drawing with a tablet is a thing where you're invited sometimes to go to places like the Academy Awards, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So, so right. are you invited almost like an anthropologist, you know, a participant observer who's there on the scene <laughs> looking at this strange ritual oh. that's going on, you know? Um, I, yes, I love that description. You know. That's how I approach it. Uh-huh. And it's all, I found a way to go to the Academy Awards five years ago, and they, they love the idea. Uh-huh. So... Now I'm, I'm invited back every year to just be there. I, I go for about sometimes a week or sometimes four days and wander around and draw the pre- preparations, draw the people behind the scenes. And then as it ramps up to the day, I start drawing the gowns and the, and the journalists and, as you say, the strange behaviors that people mm-hmm. do and then the red carpet. And mm-hmm. I don't, it's just fascinating. I love it. So that's the way I approached the DNC four years mm-hmm. ago the same way. Yeah. Like this is a ritual mm-hmm. I'm covering things that you might not see when you're watching it on TV. Yeah, yeah it's almost like the old metaphor of the person from Mars that comes down as an observer to report <laughs> back to the home planet. In this case, <laughs> yeah, may, yeah. Maybe, maybe your audience is a world of cartoon characters, you know, that needs to have this translated. Yeah. <laughs> 
painted <laughs> into a drawing, into two dimensions. So, mm. uh, really fascinating use of technology. So that leads me to the question, has technology changed the medium a lot? I mean, it's always been a difficult mm. medium to make a living at, right? I mean, even, even mm-hmm. in the old days, there weren't many people who could actually, you know, put food on the table as cartoonists, were there? Mm. Um, yeah, that's true. Well, I, I've embraced technology, as you can see. One thing that I noticed early on when Twitter became big, and I was an early adopter, and I try to be a positive voice on there, is many of the news outlets are taking the late-night comics, Mm. Trevor Noah, Jon Stewart, when he was doing that, and making clips and putting them on social media about humor about the political moment in time that we're all focusing on. And to me, that has been a... And I I enjoy them. Mm -hmm. They're great. But it has sort of replaced the political cartoon in a way because it's a short comment a short humorous comment on what's going on that we can all laugh about they're all liberal of course so that's problematic and then a lot of local newspapers have folded so Mm -hmm. many of the cartoonists who had a spot on a local newspaper and a support of an editor they're out of a job and they're moving to syndicates you know that's much less money sometimes with syndicates Mm -hmm. so that's the negative aspects Mm -hmm. but if you look at the positives you and if you embrace it and try to use it like I am, yeah. luckily I have a career behind me, mm-hmm. so I have a name, a, yeah. a bit of a, a bit of a name that helps me work with social media. So I don't get, make money when I do these broadcasts very much. Uh, I, I have in the past, but not right, not right now. But I can leverage that because I get my name out there. I can uh-huh. I can earn money other ways, like speaking yeah. engagements or books. Yeah. So um, technology has hurt and can help if you can figure out how to use better. Yeah. Or more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Of course, in the old days, you had the funnies. You know, everybody read the paper, and mm. certainly every child. I mean, right. uh, you know, the Sunday paper would come, and people would ask, "Did you read the paper today?" And for me, it was, you know, did I read yeah. the funnies? Of course, that's what you always read, especially as a child. Even a child can understand most of them and appreciate the humor. And mm-hmm. uh, that that was a r- really interesting world in terms of media to grow up in, wasn't it? I mean, you c- you come from the same yeah. era I do. So, and I suppose when mm-hmm. you were a child, I, I get the sense from the exhibit that those cartoons influenced you to want to be a cartoonist. Yeah, mm. uh, Charles Schultz. And yeah, Peanuts, I loved. So, yeah, yeah, Charles Schultz. Yeah, Charles Schultz and his strip Peanuts was, was something I looked forward to every day as a child, and uh, it was like I felt like it was mine, uh, yeah. <laughs> my my domain. Yeah. And uh, I was a shy kid, Tom. I, I didn't uh. talk a lot, and so. Drawing uh, for me was an escape and a way way uh, to be by myself. Oh, interesting! Myself. But so, yeah. So and you then, weren't and, you weren't a cut up comedian mm-hmm. in school or you know class no. sort of thing, you know. You know. <laughs> Not uh, uh, far from it, but I became known as the, the cartoonist, oh, and okay. that was a uh, great identity because yeah. I could stand on the sidelines of the high school drama and just sort of be the artist and not have to fit into a particular group and be appreciated. People people liked what I did. Mm-hmm. But you know who really influenced me, other than Schultz? There's a couple people I wanted to mention. Uh-huh. My mother gave me a book. My mother, we always had the New Yorker around the house. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and, and my father was a physician. So we had this New Yorker, and she loved it. And when I was about seven, she gave me a book by James Thurber. Mm. The book's name is Thurber Carnival. And I started tracing his drawings, and, uh-huh. and it made her smile. So that was when I really got hooked oh, as a cartoonist. Interesting. Um, drawing like Thurber and then I got my own style but I love James Thurber's drawings because they're so they seem to be so immediate and come right from his gut and yeah. they work well with his words yeah. um, in the caption it's beautifully done 
And then the other person, as I got older in, in my teen years, I was reading Barry Trudeau's Doonesbury, uh-huh. which was a great comic strip. So he's still drawing online. That came at politics from a cultural and a different form. It was a new form. Now there's a lot of comic strips that deal with politics. But back then it was, well, actually, Pogo was an early political yeah, co- yeah, comic strip. Yeah. But I was not reading that much. But Doonesbury influenced me a lot. And then her block from the Washington Post. So uh-huh. you mentioned how if we can take cartoons seriously, well, her block was a cartoonist for the Washington Post. And he did a lot of cartoons about Richard Nixon, uh-huh. even before he was president. He did cartoons that really went after Nixon in <laughs> not a sitting on the toilet kind of way, but in a way that talking about him as a this sort of force that we need to take care of. And he, yeah. he helped with the writing in the Washington Post. He really helped bring Nixon hmm. down during Watergate, I, I believe. So yeah. cartoons can be really serious tools if used well. For politics, but now yeah. I don't know if it would work so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Thurber, of course, he's one of the funniest people ever to put mm. pen to paper. I rate him second to Chaucer as a, as a comedian. Oh. And his cartoons were just lovely. And they're almost something that looks like a child has drawn them, except they're so mm. simple and there's so much message there that you see you're looking at somebody more like Egon Schiele than you are just a child mm-hmm. draw, drawing mm-hmm. something. But a good many of those cartoons had to do with what he would call the war between men and women, of course, you know. So I don't know if that's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. stuff would mm-hmm. fly quite as well as it did in those days. I like Rodney Dangerfield, of course, too, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, as a child looking at James Thurber's drawings, I didn't understand them, of course. I just liked the drawing because uh-huh. I felt like it was acceptable. Uh-huh. I thought if, if these drawings can be in The New Yorker, maybe I can, and that uh-huh. encouraged me, I think, to draw, but uh, it also pleased my mother and my aunt, uh-huh. and so that was another motivation, but Thurber, I didn't understand his captions at all as uh-huh. a young person. They didn't make sense to me. And some of his women were confusing uh-huh. <laughs> to me. As a young girl growing up, his women were either battle axes, you yeah, know, uh-huh. terrifying Liter- uh, literally, yeah. women <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, that, that, that humiliated men, yeah. or sort of waif-like flower child, yeah. harmless women. So as a kid, as a young woman, I thought these are the choices that I have <laughs> as, uh, growing up. Yeah. Oh, uh, so I, I chose to ignore that, yeah. really, and just like his drawing. So. Yeah, yeah. I always think of the man coming home from work and the house leaning over him with, <laughs> with his wife's face on it. Uh, yeah. Being mm-hmm. uh, afraid to yeah. walk in the door. But. That's a, I love that. And then there's Walter Mitty, which oh, is yeah. a great, uh-huh. great yeah. story. So other cartoons. Were you a fan of Kathy by any chance, which I always liked? I had a good friend that, no. uh, that whose mother yeah. always said oh, really? she, she thought she was going to turn into Kathy there. But uh, for me, it was Mort Walker's stuff. Beetle Bailey taking after my mm. father, who always used to say it was the only thing that captured the military in any kind of realistic way, uh, Beetle Bailey. Mm. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah. and also Blondie. Yeah, no, all these strips. You know, I focused in on, uh, when I was young, I Peanuts. Peanuts. Charlie Brown and, and Lucy and Snoopy was my favorite character. Yeah. But I didn't read many others. I think I sort of yeah. I veered away from comics yeah. uh, after I was a kid and, and went towards political and uh, the New Yorker. So if you were intent on becoming a cartoonist from a, a young age, you were practicing sort of self-teaching, I know. Did you take any formal drawing classes? I mean, is that something cartoonists ought to do? I mean, it seems to me it might be counterproductive, I don't know, because there's a sort of spontaneity about mm. the way most cartoonists draw things. Is a Am, mm-hmm. am I right there? Mm-hmm. Or uh... Yeah, yeah, I think you are right. But many cartoonists had some 
formal training. Uh-huh. If you look at the women, I did that book, as you mentioned, Funny Ladies, studying the women cartoonists of the New Yorker in the 20s and 30s and up to 2000. And by the way, there's a new edition coming out next year. Very, uh-huh. I'm doing a new edition of that book. Uh-huh. But that's another subject. But looking at those women in the 20s and 30s, they came from art school. Uh-huh. So they, they were really great draftsmen. Uh-huh. And they learned how to use that effectively, many of them, in the cartoon format. Uh-huh. Like Helen Hokanson and uh, Alice Harvey and Barbara Sherman. Barbara Sherman, if you look at her work, it's just beautiful, very expressive, gestural. I have one of her originals here. Mm-hmm. Expressive and gestural drawings that as a piece of drawing, it's just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was art school trade from California. But then there's this caption, I think, that's just hysterical. And she also commented on the times. Like she was almost like a flapper herself. She uh-huh. would comment on what it was like to be a woman in the 20s. Uh-huh. And um, I just love that. A lot of cartoons have had formal training. I had some art training. I did, did take art classes when I was in college, but I'm mostly self-taught. Yeah, because yeah, I think you're right. It, for many of us, it's about coming from the gut and not necessarily drawing realistically. Panel narrative cartoons where the cartoonists must have had some formal training, like Mary Worth, you know, everything drawn in detail. I don't know if you mm. remember those. Uh, mm-hmm. They didn't appeal to children for the most part. They were like soap opera, no. basically. But. And there's also some cartoonists, um, that is their style, is to be render it in a detailed way. There are cartoonists like John O'Brien in the New York. Part of the humor in his drawings is that he renders things. It's a pun, usually, just a simple pun. Mm-hmm. But he renders it so deeply that that's part of the humor. Like mm-hmm. uh, It's like he went to this extent to draw this thing, and then it's just a simple pun. Mm-hmm. So there's different ways to use drawing for different purposes. We did have a cartoonist here. I don't know if she made it into your book, but she's very peculiar. I don't know if she's well-known. Anne Cleveland, who was a Vassar graduate, oh, yeah. who, who drew mm-hmm. while she was here. And her work actually reminds me a lot of yours in that it's very much mm-hmm. from her point of view as a woman and in uh, subtleties she's able to convey about the humor that she sees around her at Vassar. And that leads me to the question, I guess, is there such a thing as a woman's point of view in a cartoon? Just a simple question, I guess. With an author, for instance, mm-hmm. it's really chancy to try and guess the gender of the writer from a passage of her work. So the question, I suppose, one question you could ask is, would your cartoons be read in the same way, with the same slant, if the byline read Larry Donnelly instead of Eliza Donnelly? Mm, that's a great question. I get that a lot, and I, uh, I've dealt with that uh-huh. as I write about women in this business. When I began cartooning, I grew up right after the second wave of feminism. So mm-hmm. I was feeling that, thank you, Gloria Steinem, we're fine now. Um, <laughs> I'll just go do what I want to do yeah, okay. <laughs> and become a cartoonist. And I didn't think about gender. I thought I'm just going to be a cartoonist. And I did. And I didn't consider myself a woman cartoonist. Mm-hmm. And I still don't consider myself that uh-huh. way. I'm a cartoonist who yeah. happens to be a woman. Uh-huh. So I don't think necessarily my cartoons show any gender. And I hope they don't. Women don't draw alike. We don't think alike. Uh-huh. Uh, we're not monolithic. Yeah. artist so but that said you know I think around when was this right after I was writing that book Funny Ladies I started to take more seriously that as a woman who draws cartoons maybe I should approach cartooning as a tool to talk about women's rights so mm-hmm. I started to do more cartoons about women's rights men do many cartoons about women's rights too so it's not something that is exclusive to women mm-hmm. of course uh, that said i'm a woman so i know what it's like to be a woman yeah. and so i can bring that to the table something that a man cannot bring to the table yeah, so yeah. when i started to do that draw more about women 
and also giving women voices. Like in the New Yorker cartoons I did in the 90s, Tina Brown was editor. Uh-huh. And uh, she bought a lot of my work. She was very controversial, as you know. A lot yeah. of people didn't care for what she did to the magazine, and I questioned some of the things she did. But she liked my work, and she was very supportive. I didn't know her that well. I just met her a few times. But she bought cartoons of mine. And now looking back, where the woman was speaking in the cartoon, the woman was being sort of sarcastic or making the humor towards a man, perhaps. So there's a, a number of my cartoons are like that from that time period. And I think that was the beginning of me realizing that I could and maybe should do more of that. And then fast forward another 10 years with the internet and after 9-11, I started to focus more on women around the globe as we all did. We started, started to notice, uh, we should have noticed before, but we were noticing more because of the internet, more what the problems were with women's rights globally. And I started to think, well, I can't draw about a woman in Afghanistan because I don't know what it's mm-hmm. like to be her. Yeah. I can't, you know, I'm going to... American, I draw about what I know. But I began to think about that, and I thought, well, what do we have in common other than breasts and vaginas? Mm-hmm. And, and that's a complicated topic as well because of gender fluidity. But yeah. what we have in common is that all women around the globe are harassed, raped, mm-hmm. <laughs> underpaid, mm-hmm. underappreciated, and on some level, to some degree. There may be one country somewhere. Maybe Finland doesn't have any of that. But mm-hmm. that's what I decided that I could draw about globally, that we all share that, sadly. Yeah. Are there a sort of representative number of women cartoonists in the business, or are women a minority among cartoonists making a living at it? It's changing. I mean, it's, there's still an imbalance in numbers, but really changing fast. And that's why I'm doing a new edition of Funny Ladies. Uh-huh. It's going to be called Very Funny Ladies. Uh-huh. And it's because... And the book, Tom, the book is about women at The New Yorker, not in general. Uh, okay, although I do mention yeah. other women yeah, uh-huh. in other magazines, but mostly it's about The New Yorker. And so now at The New Yorker, there are a lot more women drawing cartoons than there were before, although I should say that in 1925, when The New Yorker was founded by Harold Roth and his wife, Jane Grant, who was a feminist and a member of the Lucy Stone League, Mm -hmm. they had the first issue had a woman, Ethel Plummer. Uh So The New Yorker was open to women from the get-go as cartoonists and I guess as writers as well. They just wanted the best humor that was Mm -hmm. in New York at the time. And some women were, because of the, the right to vote, many women were joining different fields in large numbers, but not being successful always. Yeah. So there have always been women in the magazine, except during, this is interesting to me, Tom, because during the middle of the last century, the Mm -hmm. 50s and 60s, women started to dwindle, the the numbers of women. Uh, In fact, there were no women drawing cartoons in the uh, 60s, which if you think about the waves of feminism, you'll understand why that is. And and then in the 70s, a new cartoon editor came on board, Lee Lorenz, and he brought me in, he brought Roz Chast in, and many others after us. So it just took a different way of looking at humor, which is what Lee did. I asked him, I interviewed him for my book, I said, are you, were you looking for women? And he said, no, no, I was just looking for new approaches to humor. Uh-huh. And I think when you open the doors for considering what the standard for good is, I think that opens the door for more diversity. I think in the 50s, the New Yorker cartoon had become sort of standardized, mm-hmm. very funny, but yeah. standardized and yeah. very much from a white male perspective. Yeah. And when Lee came on board, he opened the door for more ways. Like Roz Chaps and myself, I did a lot of multi-panel cartoons. Mm-hmm. We approached humor from another direction, which is sort of what Saul Steinberg did. I don't want to compare myself to him, but uh-huh. and over the history of the magazine, there have been a number of cartoonists that break the mold, but in the 60s, it was very male-dominated. And now, in this time period, there's a new cartoon editor, and she happens to be a woman, and she is bringing in a lot of women and more people of color, so Mm -hmm. it's changing. Yeah, good. 
the death knell of any publication is too much editorial control sometimes, you know, um, where things mm-hmm, do become mm-hmm, standardized. Mm-hmm. So. Yes, so, I, I think so. The New Yorker got so successful. Speaking of cartooning and gender, what's it like to be married to a cartoonist? <laughs> You know, uh, uh, it's a great like a petri dish. I yeah. can watch him and okay, yeah. and, uh, see how he does it. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so Thurber's war between men and women isn't a war between men and women cartoonists in your home, then, right? So no, no, no okay. uh, we're yeah. very supportive of each other, uh, and we uh, don't share our work with each other. Oh, so. you don't? Okay. Yeah, we met. We were both cartoonists already at the New Yorker, yeah. and that's how we met. Oh, I so see. We have our own little worlds, and we sort of dip into it, uh-huh. it's invited every yeah. now and then. So how did you make the jump into doing children's books? Because you do have a series of children's books, yes? Mm-hmm. Well, I had a series with Scholastic in the 80s and 90s. And, oh. uh, you know, Tom, I avoided that world early on because I didn't want to be stereotyped because people uh-huh. would say to you, oh, your drawings are so cute. They're so cute. Why don't you <laughs> yeah. draw for children? And I uh-huh. really didn't like hearing that. I didn't yeah, want to be no, cute. Yeah. So I avoided the world, but I had an idea for a book, and I met an agent at a social function, and she encouraged me, and I signed with her, and she brought this idea to Scholastic, and they bought it, and, and we did seven books with, with them. Mm-hmm. And they're picture books. They're almost wordless. Mm-hmm. They're for early readers, and uh, they're about dinosaurs. So I like doing books with a few words, so uh-huh. it's just something that appeals uh-huh. to me, visual storytelling. Yeah. And then I did two more with Holiday House, uh-huh. two different topics. So with words, uh-huh. is captioning a big part of cartooning, both below the frame, but also words in the thought bubbles and uh, speech bubbles? How important is being able to come up with good text, I suppose, is the question. Oh, it's crucial. Uh-huh. You have to, uh, those captions, they look simple. People who have tried the caption contest in the back of the magazine uh-huh. know how yeah. difficult it is. and how The best cartoons are ones that, to me where the words and the image interact, dance with each other in, uh, a, in a way that you don't even notice. You have to construct the caption to mm-hmm. sound right, to read right, to have, you know, often choosing funny words is important. You don't, mm-hmm. Some words are funnier than others. <laughs> and also to be, make sure you communicate the idea so you are aware of your audience, even if it's subconsciously. I'm not uh, de Kooning. I don't know if he was aware of his audience, but I have uh-huh. to be with these cartoons for the New Yorker, I have to be sort of conscious that the person that looking at it understands what I'm trying to say, because you get uh, misunderstood. As we know, cartoons can be misunderstood and, and can be caused death. Yeah. So. Yeah, the thing about a cartoon and all drawing is it's very close to text. I mean, they come from the same thing, the point of a pen. And mm-hmm. there's something very textual about all drawings. So getting the caption and the drawing to work together would seem to me something that's almost embedded in the way drawings are done. I mean, it's almost as though you're writing, Mm -hmm. isn't it? And especially with a cartoon, which is uh, just, it's very sketchy, I'd say that very well. But There are cartoons, we're talking about the New Yorker now, there are cartoons that go for the laugh, and then there are cartoons that make you think, Uh and there are cartoons that you don't really, you don't really know what's going on, or you Uh don't know what that is. Like Saul Steinberg, sometimes you're not Uh quite clear what he's saying. Or um, (laughs) William Steig, work from the 70s, they're almost like visual poetry to me. I loved, I loved his work. But, you know, you just get a feeling from it. It's like a piece of art. Some cartoons are like that. So do you work with a sketchbook, or do your drawings come whole-formed? I mean, do you have to practice an image yeah. before you decide you want to run with it? Uh, uh, sometimes, yeah. I have, a, I have no, numerous sketchbooks and scrap paper. And The way I come up with ideas is I have a sketchbook, and in it are 
doodles and words and every day almost every day I sit with that sketchbook and write down new things sketch new things and that that's how the idea comes it's sort of like a mm-hmm. mixture of random elements and then I mean I've been doing this a long time so I tend to gravitate and my style gravitates towards certain scenarios in, in my New Yorker cartoons and so I don't usually have to practice the drawing mm-hmm. so much although sometimes if they buy a cartoon or the idea and I'm doing the finished drawing with ink and I still work on paper for them I often have to do it numerous times mm-hmm. in order to get it to look like it's done effortlessly so mm-hmm. Yeah. And get it, get it look like I wanted to. So one instance where that would have been mm-hmm. easier is the old uh, paper panels, or like Schultz doing peanuts, where he's doing the same characters all the time. So mm-hmm. if the media hadn't changed so dramatically, can you picture yourself having gone in that direction, ending up doing some sort of panel for a newspaper, or were your cartoons always going to be one image? I suppose the question is, how important mm-hmm. is a, a narrative in what you do? Well, Tom, I think narrative is is still in there in single-panel cartoon uh-huh, uh-huh. because it's a snapshot in time, a single-panel uh-huh. cartoon. So there is a before and there's an after, so in theory, to make that single image work. So it's a bit of a narrative. But I, I've done a lot of narrative cartoons for The New Yorker early on. I did, we call them sequential cartoons. They're yeah. multi-panel without the boxes, telling a little story without words. My first cartoon that they bought was virtually wordless, and it was a four-panel drawing. So I, I like using that format. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I never was drawn to do writing for the newspaper because it seems like a lot of pressure and, uh, and you can't really yeah. be who you want to be. You're beholden to a syndicate and uh, to telling a joke, and I didn't really want to do that. So yeah. even though so I hope some of mine are, but my cartoons are funny. So, and, and I've done graphic narratives. I'm working on a graphic novel right now. So. Oh, uh-huh. It's a form that's very popular, and I, I like it. I like to fool around with new ways to approach storytelling. Yeah, it must be very different sort of drawing than it uh, seemed to me. It is. I don't know how novelists write novels because they're long yeah. <laughs> and you spend time with them. And my cartoons are just so quick. Often. Yeah. Is so there a, um, a market for things like, well, your cartoons, for one? I mean, a market apart from print medium, do people buy these things and put them on their walls? I mean, I've seen, of course, old Disney drawings from mm. uh, not necessarily Walt's own drawings, but drawings that come out of his studio that uh, were shown in galleries and people purchase them. So I just wonder if that's done uh, with cartoonists. It is. I mean, uh, over the years, The New Yorker has facilitated sales of originals for uh-huh. So and people like to buy original art, and there's also they make prints of them as well. Mm. Which but the market for original New Yorker cartoons is really not there anymore. People no. spend the money or don't want to spend the money. But I have sold some of those, and it's, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're New Yorker cartoons. It's there's some cachet in, with the New Yorker cartoon on your wall, I guess, uh-huh. um, that people like to have, or a strip. They would love to have a, a Charles Schultz. Uh-huh. drawing on their wall. It functions a little less than, uh, differently than a painting. Uh-huh. And I do sell yeah. prints from the political work that I do. The people online asked if I would sell uh-huh. that drawing of the suffrage women that I did a couple of days ago. People want prints of that or uh-huh. prints of things that I've done politically. Yeah. So I, uh, who knows why they want them, but that's, uh-huh. it's nice. So with the objects in the Rockwell Museum, do those tend to be originals or do they just take reproductions of works that you've published from their sources. I, yeah. I, I'm not sure how that sort of thing's mm-hmm. done. Um, yeah, they are originals. Uh, except for the digital drawings, they have, uh-huh. they have prints made. But uh-huh. 
most of the work there is original. And the museum came to my studio. We spent a lot of time making choices. And the, the uh, curator, Stephanie Plunkett, made the final choices. But we it was a back and forth with her. And it's a very odd process. I've never done anything quite like this before. Yeah. From an archivist's perspective, then, do you keep an archive of your works that they had access to then? Uh, that, which is an, an interesting question for me because I'm a librarian and I wonder about uh, mm. cartoonists out there if they have big libraries of their original works mm-hmm. uh, waiting to go. Yeah, well, I have everything. Yeah, oh, I have everything uh-huh. here in this. Uh-huh. I have my studio in an old barn. Uh-huh. But, yeah, I just bought my first set of flat files, if you know what those are. I'm sure you know what those are. You're, you're yeah, not uh-huh, historian. yeah, uh-huh. And uh, I'm sort of organized. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was an interesting process during COVID, beginning of COVID-19, where I was just here in my studio by myself, going through old work, high school work, going through old drawings uh-huh. and revisiting my life in a way that I hadn't done before, and then choosing to show things to Stephanie uh-huh. Plunkett, the curator, uh-huh. yeah. or not. <clears throat> and um, many cartoonists house their collections in museums, when they died, uh-huh. their collections are in museums. The Norman Rockwell Museum has William Steig's work, uh-huh. as well as other cartoonists, uh-huh. and Norman Rockwell, of course. Yeah. And um, the Ohio State University has a lot of work, or Syracuse University has a lot of work. Columbia University has a lot of cartoonists' work, so that's why you can go study them. You know, the Smithsonian prints and drawings have cartoons. I have uh-huh. some of my work there, and they want, uh-huh. they're asked for more. Uh-huh. It's great for scholars to go and study political cartoons over a period of time. I went down there a couple times and they would pull out drawings for me to look at when I was writing my book. It's great. You see old cartoons from the 20s and 30s. So the Rockwell Museum, you've got the exhibit there, but if people want to look online, uh, there's a wonderful video of you doing a walkthrough of the show, yes, that uh, I'll link to the website as well, because we can't have the images here before us. Uh, It's hard to describe anything visual on the radios. Yeah, they have a wonderful website that has a lot of audio Uh interviews of me talking about my work. And then, Tom, they they have an app. Norman Rockwell has an app now. And you can use that way if you visit the museum, which you can do. You have to get a ticketed time yeah. entry. But you can point your phone to one of my cartoons and, and then hear me talk about it. Oh, so it's, oh. it's great, te- great technology. Yeah. Yeah. But you can also do that at home if you want to yeah. hear me talk about something. Uh, um, then you can go to the app and... No, I, I got the feeling from the website to the show that this is a museum that really has its act together as far as outreach and program goes, and that, that there's mm-hmm. you know there's so much about the show there on the site that you can use to learn about the show. Um, they uh, do, and, yeah. and and let me just mention that they uh, they are also interested in education. So yeah. they have these every Tuesday. We're doing these Zoom seminars with different kinds of cartoonists. So they're almost over now. And they're going to archive these so that Uh. schools and libraries can see. There was a political event recently. There was one on children's books last week, Uh. this past week. And so it's great um, educational. Oh, yeah. It sounds uh, wonderful Mm -hmm. because, A, people always think of cartoonists as people in the humor business, but also your educators and, in Mm. your case, a political activist. Thank you, yeah. Yeah. Is activism a big part of being who you are, uh, you know, professionally? I mean, it seems you have an opportunity here with your medium to do this. It is, Tom. I I mean, when I was a young teenager growing up in Washington, D.C., during the civil rights era, the the second wave of feminism and the assassinations in Watergate, I was already drawing and I wanted to do something with my drawing. Mm -hmm. I was a very idealistic young woman. I wanted to, I thought, well, I'm not going to get on a protest 
march. I'm not that kind of person. I can't, I don't feel comfortable doing that, but I can draw. So that sort of started back then, and and then I became a New Yorker cartoonist. It was still there, but it was less of a thing that I did in the '80s and '90s. But now it's very much a part of who I am and what I do, trying to talk about issues like the Black Lives Matter movement. I've been doing a lot of drawings about that. Mm-hmm. And all of these are on my Medium column. Yeah. Not in the New Yorker, they're on Medium. But yeah, it's, I've got this skill and I want to use it to talk about things that I think are important. So, do everybody do what they can, right? Oh yeah, yes. But you're in a position as someone who writes and publishes that you know you can actually do something to a good effect that a lot of us don't have the opportunity to do, although everybody could do something mm. in their own way. Which leads me to mm-hmm. the question, there was a United Nations program that you were part of, yes? Mm-hmm. That, yes. That was cartoon-based that had to do with an incident. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Love to. Back in 2005, there was the Danish cartoon controversy, which mm. has its own Wikipedia, so you can read about it. But um, it, an editor in Denmark commissioned some artists that he knew, uh, invited them to draw Muhammad, and he wanted to see what would happen. And some cartoonists and artists decided to take him up on it. And they were published in Denmark and didn't cause much of a stir. But with the Internet just beginning, the images, one of which was pretty harsh about Muhammad. His turban was a was a bomb mm. So uh, by Kurt Westerfeld. And um, the images were taken by extremist groups and spread around uh, and caused a lot of riots and, and destruction. So that was... That was that in 2005, and it was the first time you saw the word cartoon above the fold in the New York Times. We saw that cartooning was something that could cause problems. Um, I'm not blaming the cartoonists. They have the right to draw what they want. But with the Internet, you have to think about, I believe, you have to think twice about what you're drawing before you draw it. And you have to, This is a complicated issue with cartoonists because we all want freedom of expression. We, want, we should have freedom, but we have responsibility, I think. Anyway, right after that, Kofi Annan, who was the Secretary General of the UN at the time, who loves cartoons, he loved cartoons, he's now dead, he wanted to have a day of talking about cartoons because of this incident. And he connected with Jean Plantou from the Le Monde, he's the cartoonist there. Mm-hmm. And they had a day of, of cartoonists talking about their craft. And I was invited to be a part of that, which we were 12 of us. And from that day, Cartooning for Peace was established. And mm. it's still running and based out of France. Paris with Jean Plantu, and they have gatherings of cartoonists all over the world at different times talking about cartoons and what they mean politically and how they are used in their individual countries. It's, a, it's fascinating, Tom, to, to know cartoonists around the world, and many of whom are struggling and are being killed and, and injured and threatened and put in jail mm-hmm. like any other journalist. So yeah. we try to shine light on these issues and use cartooning as a way to talk about important issues, and uh, help people that are in danger. So if you shine a light on a cartoonist that's being mm. persecuted, then give them an award and some money, then it elevates them to, to where they might be safer. Mm. So that's what that is, and it's still going, and I love it. So it allowed you then to meet cartoonists from all over the world? Uh, mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, they're great. Uh, it's fun to, to also look at how they are different, and, and I learned a lot from studying cartoons from different countries because they used visual metaphors so beautifully because mm-hmm. they can't use words oftentimes because they won't translate to other countries. So it's mm-hmm. a great exercise in how to use visual language effectively. Do mm-hmm. cartoonists have a professional organization that you belong to? I mean, do you get a chance to, to meet with other cartoonists ordinarily? I mean, 
apart from this cartooning for peace uh, and talk to people about yeah. you know, what you do. Yeah. There are. There are two professional organizations. One is National Cartoonist Society, which uh-huh. uh, I'm not a member of. They're all cartoonists, hmm. and they do get together for an annual convention when uh-huh. there's not a virus. And they have comics and illustration and political and a few New Yorker mm. people. And then there's the American Association of Editorial Cartoonists, of which I'm a member and I'm on the board. They're, as the name describes, they're mostly political cartoonists, editorial mm-hmm. cartoonists. So, mm. And it's a way to talk about issues. And we try to be proactive with, with cartoonists that are struggling globally as well. They have a global component, this, this organization. Must be interesting conferences, I'm thinking, at least uh, sort of hospitality suites in the hotel bars. Uh, um, uh, although, <laughs> I don't know if, it's, if, if I have a misconception mm-hmm. that cartoonists are funny people, particularly, uh, necessarily. <laughs> some uh, are, yeah, some aren't. Some, are, yeah. Yeah, some, are, some <laughs> okay. are very funny. Like, yeah, stand-up. So. Some are doing stand-up. You know, they cross uh, that line. Uh-huh, but uh-huh. some are very, some of us are very depressive and yeah. <laughs> quiet. <so. laughs> uh, it depends yeah. on the cartoonist. Yeah, it's kind of... Uh, you know, what's also fun... There's not a New Yorker gathering or organization, but uh-huh. there have been weekly. When I was starting out, we would have weekly lunches and get together after we submitted our cartoons. We'd go out and have lunch, and that's an old tradition with the New Yorker cartoonists, uh-huh. and that's fun. So not an organized thing, but it's a fun way to commiserate. Uh, that sounds yeah, wonderful. And last question, I didn't ask you about your stint here at Vassar when you were a, a visiting professor. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was really fascinating, and I've learned so much. When I did Funny Ladies, I came to speak at Vassar, and Judy Nichols invited me to uh. help make that happen, and she's a friend. And then from there, Judy and I did a class together, writing and using imagery as prompts for creative writing. She wanted to work with me about imagery and visual prompts for writing. So we did that, and then Diane Hereford invited me to teach in the Women's Studies Department. So I taught there. I taught the Introduction to Women's Studies with other professors three times, and then I did a couple of courses on my own, one on women and humor, which I loved so much. And it wasn't just about cartoons, but it was about talking about Dorothy Parker and Mae West and uh. many other people. So that was a fun course to create. And then I did a class that they teach, or they did at the time regularly, called Bodies and Texts. Mm-hmm. which I talked about women using their bodies in imagery to as protest or as, as, as a way mm-hmm. to express what it is to be a woman. So that was a, a good course, too. Mm-hmm. And then I taught with Peter Antilles. I taught a class uh-huh. in, in comics and cartoons in American culture, which was really fun. He knows so much about comics. Yeah, does he ever, yeah. Yeah, he does. So that was great. And it was fun. I really enjoyed it. I learned so much from the students. Yeah, I used oh, cartoons okay. in the classes. <laughs> yeah, they're an educational medium for sure. They are. So I want to thank you, Liza, for visiting with us today on the Library Cafe to talk about your exhibit Comic Relief up at the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge and about cartooning. Well, thank you, Tom. It was great to be here. I love, I love talking with you. Yeah, same here. We'll, we'll have to do this again mm-hmm. sometime. So, uh, maybe yeah, I'd love to. I'd when I, your next I, book comes out, the new New Yorker book. So. Oh, yeah, I'd love to talk about yeah. that, yeah. That was my connection to that. That was when my first book came out ah, about women. So, thanks again. You have been listening to an interview with New Yorker staff cartoonist Liza Donnelly who has been talking to us about her retrospective exhibition currently on at the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, entitled Comic Relief. We have a link to the museum website and Donnelly's own website on the Library Cafe website at library-cafe.org. 
Tune into the show next Wednesday at noon when we'll be talking with Professor Brian Van Norden about his book, Taking Back Philosophy, a Multicultural Manifesto, published by Columbia University Press in 2017. You can find a listing of future episodes of the Library Cafe as well as an archive of podcasts of all our interviews going back 14 years now on our website at library-cafe.org. I'm Thomas Hill. Thanks for tuning in.